welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am delighted to welcome back Professor John McKendrick from the Scottish Poverty and Inequality Research Unit based at GCU to talk about child poverty and how his research has helped set up an innovative grab-and-go scheme designed to give school children a free breakfast. John, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Uh, great seeing you again, Craig. Thanks to be for inviting me along. I, well, the last time you and I would have spoke to each other would have been April 2020, and that's when we were talking about poverty in a, a wider sense. How have things been over the past 10 months? Well, me personally, or for the country, um, it's been a very different 10 months, hasn't it? I mean, I've got, of course, at that time, we were just beginning to get a sense of lockdown. It was beginning to change a little, and, and now we've, we've had a... Uh, an unprecedented period. We can't underestimate it. It's been an unprecedented period. You know, people have muddled by, you know, the, the academic staff have done the very best they can to deliver a quality education for the students. Students have done the best they can to engage with learning. But out there in the wider country, I think, you know, the, I th the problems that we knew existed for those that research poverty have been supercharged. And, and another thing I think is that people are much more aware of them. Maybe yeah. even decision makers have been much more aware of some of the really difficult situations that people face. And it's been a tough time. We know it's been a tough time, but hidden problems are becoming a little bit more visible, which if you're an optimist, uh, and I'm an optimist, you'd like to think that, that that would lead to people dealing with these problems more intensively as we move ahead. Yeah, can you just touch on that briefly, John? What are some of the problems that the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted? Well, I think it showed that many people are, are highly vulnerable in terms of the lives that they lead. You know, the, the fact that the shielding right away told us that there were vulnerable people and we, we had to deal with a shielding population. I think that would have woke up many people to think, oh, my goodness, you know, there, there are people that need others to get by. And then the, the, the worries then that, you know, that digital education is a really good example. So I think we, we, we kind of assume because we talk to people like us, you know, and, and, and I'll be critical of myself here. We assume because you've got the iPhone, you know, because you've got the computer technology that others are like you and have got it too. And what quickly became apparent, very, very quickly became apparent in schools in, in particular, was that not all children, not all families had good access to the resources they required to continue with learning in, in the lockdown period. They simply didn't have the facilities that many take for granted. So right away, it wakes us up to the fact that not everybody is enjoying what many and the majority enjoy in Scotland at the current time. So it led then to try and provide kit or provide, you know, uh, software or resources that enable people to engage that learning. That's just one example. How, how successfully do you think we have managed to bridge that digital poverty gap? I think a big pat in the back for, you know, making big progress, but we probably haven't bridged it because it's, it's very difficult to bridge it. It's, it's not just a case of giving, a, you know, a laptop to a family. If that family are, 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 you know, living on top of each other, some families are, you know, large families in a small space, then, you know, it's difficult to get the amount of kit that, that's going to allow that family to function properly. The parent might be working and needing an, a workspace. The kids might be trying to engage with learning. They might be sharing kit. So I think, you know, credit where credit's due, you know, there's a lot of good work been done by the voluntary sector as well as local government to try and address some of the problems. But the problems are so deep. You know, the problems were, were too too much hidden and underground beforehand. It, it probably caught us a little bit by surprise. So progress made, but not solutions solved. Now, as you mentioned at the top of the show, John, we're going to look at your research into child poverty. And to kick things off, what do we mean by child poverty? Can you give us a definition for that term? 
Sure, there's a real technical definition, but the long and short of it is it's not having enough. And it's not having enough relative to what the typical family has. So we're not defining child poverty according to how far behind we are of the very richest person in Scotland. We're defining child poverty in terms of, right, compared to what an, an average family has, are you so far below that average family's, what they, their means are, that you can't possibly participate, we'd expect a typical family to get. And then there's a technical definition in terms of income to, that allows us to estimate that. What do we mean by an average family? What is an average family in Scotland? Yeah, so, so what we do there is we, we it, it, there's a, a process that, that, that we use so we can compare like with like, and we say, right, this is a, we know income data, and we work out what the, the typical income is, the midpoint of the income range. And, and then we say, right, if you're a family with four kids, uh, two parents and four kids, you'll need a higher level of income to have the same standard of living as an adult living alone. So there's kind of complex procedures in the background that allow us to define whether or not somebody's living in poverty or not. It's just to give us a sense of the problem. You know, and it's not a perfect measure, but it's 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 a good measure, and it gives us a good indication of where where we're at. So, where are we at in Scotland? How big an issue is child poverty in this country? Always too big. Um, you know, we've got this aspiration to eradicate child poverty by 2030, and we're absolutely nowhere near that just now. You're something in the order of 230,000 children estimated to be living in, in poverty in Scotland before. And let me emphasise before the pandemic, and we know that the, you know that, that things are going to increase and get worse when the data come through, and it will be a couple of years before we see the impact of these data. So we're not in a good place just now. Lots of good intention, uh, lots of aspiration to change the type of nation that we are, but we'll have a lot of work to do before we begin to make progress. You think we'll need to change that goal then to eradicate child poverty by 2030? You know, I, I, oh, I'd like to say no. I'd like to say, yep, we can sort it out by the time we get to 2030, but it might be necessary to have demonstrated that the, the decisions that we make over the next few years are making progress and then to recalibrate that slightly further back. I mean, I think it's maybe a little bit early to, you know, give up on it. Mm -hmm. It's certainly, it, it's always wrong to give up on the idea of tackling poverty. But I think what we need to do is we need to be very mature when we're looking at the, pro, um, the, the, the data and the progress over the next decade. If we are making progress, if we are reducing child poverty significantly, then we keep doing what we're doing and, and ratchet up. We don't say because we've not met that target, it was daft, let's give up on it altogether. Yeah. And that might sound daft, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's happened. It happened in the UK. We had a target in the UK set in 2010 to eradicate child poverty by 2020, and we gave up on it in 2016. So there's a risk that we do the same again in Scotland, and I think we need to be mindful of that. We touched on digital poverty there, John, but what are some other examples of poverty that children might experience? Well, the food is an, is an important issue as well. And one thing that we may not like the idea of this, but it's just a reality that, that sometimes the school food that's produced is important for kids. They need that. They need that hot meal in the day in the winter time that a school dinner provided. And many children in Scotland are entitled to free school meals. Now, schools, local authorities are, are, have done power of good work in trying to make sure that the equivalent is available to kids when they're not in school. So for many authorities, the approach they've taken is to give the, the financial equivalent to what they would have got with free school meals to allow the family to purchase the food. And a couple of authorities have taken a provide a food parcel that, that, that does the same. But there's a clear indication in that families are needing support to get food. <laughs> Just take a step back and think about that. And this is the 21st century Scotland, one of the richest countries in the world, or, or part of one of the richest countries in the world. And we need schools to provide food to a significant number of children. 
And we're now recognising it's not just that 190 days that they're in school, but we have to do something in the holiday period. Mm -hmm. So that, that you know, there's been good work done by the Scottish government and the UK government eventually, once they get a wee push to encourage them to do the right thing by Marcus Rashford yeah. um, down south. Um, you know, there's that extension of provision into the, the holidays too. So food poverty is an issue uh, that we have to face up to. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Marcus Rashford, John. I know he's not Scottish, but he is a, certainly a very well-known figure in the UK. How important was his work in pushing the, the government to provide school meals outside of term time? Yeah, really important for down south. I mean, I, I think to the credit of the Scottish government, they were committed to this anyway. They put the resources in place, uh, but the UK government did it, deem it to be a priority and it did require the intervention of a celebrity with the backup of the voluntary sector. I mean, let's, you know, let's give credit where credit's due. Marcus Radford, superstar, you know, absolutely, you know, for, for being able to share his own experiences. And that's really important that you can yeah. realise that, you know, that, you know, that there are people like you that, you know, believe in you and, and see value in you. And that's what Rashford was doing when he was sharing his experiences. So absolutely critical his intervention, but it also required a wider civil society to, you know, provide the evidence and the push to government to encourage them to bring that in. I say probably less important in Scotland, actually, because we, we, we kind of got that already. We had the commitments in place with the Scottish government and, you know, not just the, the party of government, but other political parties buy it as well. They get the idea it was required, but absolutely critical for the UK. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for uh, the interventions of uh, Marcus Rashford down why, south. Why, why did it take his intervention to the government to, to do a U-turn on this? Because it seems like what you're saying, John, it, it just seems like a, the right thing to do, quite an obvious thing to do. Yeah, right thing to do, obvious thing to do if you're aware of it. And I think maybe there's a distance there. I mean, with the best will in the world, there's a distance between Westminster and the Westminster circle and everyday lives of many people in the UK. And if you can't make that bridge, you know, if you can't get your, your mind out of that Westminster bubble, then you'll probably find it difficult to believe that that's a reality. But it is a reality. You know, that's what the research, that's the, the work of groups like the Poverty Alliance tell us time and time again. That's the, the experience of far too many people in the UK. So I think it's just a, a disbelief that that was the scale of the problem um, that led them really not to see it as a priority, but it very much is a priority. To their credit, they've, they've, they've came on board, they've, they've done it eventually. The, the litmus test, I think, will be going forward once we begin to move out of this crisis period and what the priorities are for the nation going forward. Uh, I think the last thing the UK needs is to have an austerity programme where we try and uh, pair back. And I, I think that's a great worry that that might be the direction we take. Well, that leads me on to my next question, John, then. What should the government be doing then to alleviate child poverty? You know, that in Scotland, there was that social renewal board that reported at the start of the year, and our very own Angela Hagen in the social sciences was part of that group. In fact, one of our ex-graduates as well, you know, was Eileen Colley, a social science graduate, was also in that group now working with the Scottish Pensioners Forum. I mean, that was a broad cross-section of civil society and leaders in Scotland thinking about what type of Scotland we should be creating going forward. Uh, and, it, it, you know, there, there's options there. You, you, you could have a wholesale shift in what our priorities are. There's been ideas about a more caring economy that, you know, rather than being really welded to the pounds and pens driving us forward, that we put care at the heart of what we're about. Now, that might sound soft. That might sound a bit like, oh, a bit really, you know, what does that really mean? But if you think about the caring economy, it's absolutely critical. Social care has been something that we really have woken up to over this crisis. There are many people involved in that industry like it or not, it's a growth industry. You know, there are people are living older, and if we just think about care at the, the elder yeah. years, you know, there are many more people needing care. It's a real important part of the economy, 
uh, and it's you know it's an important part of it, the, the everyday economy of households about how many households get by because of the rise in these wages. So just shifting the, the, the way in which the economy wants to recognise the value of it to remunerate it properly, uh, and, and create a more healthy economy around that sector. More broadly, that idea of a caring economy then is something that, that, that could shift Scotland in a different direction. How easy is that to achieve? Really difficult. And let's not kid on any wholesale societal shift is not going to happen o- overnight. Um, and you're, you're not throwing away the strengths that Scotland has. It's an economic growth sectors. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a subtle change through time that we have to bring in. We're going to have problems for a, for quite a significant time. We've already got a lot of poverty. That's not going to go away overnight. It's been intensified for many. It's an experience I'm, I'm sure will increase and it's become a new experience for some. We're not going to be able to increase that overnight. But we've got to get a direction of travel that pulls us in a different direction. And it's possible. Um, we have the wherewithal if we so choose to you know, align our priorities in a different direction and then direct resources to, to challenge that. You said you're an optimist, John. You're optimistic that the country can achieve this at some point? Uh, 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 he stutters. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm an optimist. Maybe I'm a naive optimist, but I think you've got to believe. You've got to believe it's possible. And then you've got to do what you can to, to make that possible. And there's there's many good people in many sectors are working in these things. You're not, you're not, you know, it's not a kind of left and right in a very simple debate. Across the political spectrum, there are people that want a better country. There are people that want a healthier society. You know, there's, there's people in, in, you know, tech in, in, in the high end in business and, you know, in fintech, for example, that are introducing products to try and improve the lives of the, the most vulnerable in Scotland. There's a, there's a lot of people who like to do a lot of good. I think we just need to start making bigger changes in that direction. Well, certainly one of the changes that we're going in that direction, this is fundamentally what we wanted to talk to you about today, was with the introduction of a pilot grab-and-go mobile food cart. It was child in a primary school in Barhead, very successful, and it's being rolled out across the rest of the UK. Could you tell us about that scheme? Yeah, it's interesting. The kind of driving force of that is one of Scotland's Poverty and Inequality Commissioners, uh, Lindsay Graham, uh, and a colleague of hers, Lynn Marsh, uh, from uh, the Greggs Foundation, uh, Lynn and, Lynn and um, Lindsay have been to North America and have looked at solutions to food poverty in North America and we're interested that in both Canada and the USA there were schemes that had breakfast carts in the morning. Very simple idea. Basically, food was made freely available. Kids helped themselves when they came to school. Now, we have breakfast clubs in Scotland. You know, breakfast clubs, or Some schools have breakfast clubs, which are kind of more formalised um, form of provision. But this is just as an alternative. It's just a more casual way of, of kids that need food getting food without having attention drawn to them. And the idea then was to pilot it in East Renfrewshire, three schools, two primaries and a, and a secondary, see how it went. Coronavirus kicked in at the back end of the pilot. So it's a shame that, you know, it wasn't a fully fledged evaluation. It wasn't possible to do that. But I think we did enough in terms of, you know, observing what went on, talking to, um, pay, uh, not parents, sorry, talking to teachers, talking to pupils, and observing the use of the cart to say that well it was working, mm-hmm. it was where you, whether whether it's got you know bigger longer term effects in terms of you know facilitating engagement and learning is, is for a bigger scale evaluation and as it gets rolled out as I'm sure it will you pointed at many schools already picking up on it already then there's a, there's a scope to look at it more carefully but I think what it certainly is just now is a promising idea, a promising idea that's of its time. Because as we move back, you know, the schools are now coming back, kids are back in school and increasingly will over the next next few weeks. Whether breakfast clubs will be introduced right away is really up for grabs. I think highly unlikely that that will be the case. There'll be other priorities and, and maybe too too much to think about to get the breakfast cart model sorted. 
breakfast cart, sorry, breakfast club. So a breakfast cart might be a, a very good interim solution, as well as when something in the longer term we might want to, to consider. There are a few things that you said there, John, that I want to touch on. But the first one you said about using a breakfast cart without drawing attention to it. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the, the concerns that we've always had with any form of providing food in schools, where it's free for some kids and not free for others, is a stigma that's attached to it. So the free school meals. Now, in the past, you go way back to when I was a kid, you, you know, get, you'll get my pipe out here and, you know, the slippers <laughs> out of a diff, different era. You know, some schools had different tickets and different queues for kids at free school meals, yeah. which just seems ridiculous. But it was that, that sense of you are different because you're entitled to a free school meal. So it was obvious which kids were. And, Kids can be a bit, you know, a bit harder than other kids sometimes. You, you look for all types of vulnerability. So a stigma attached to it, which makes it less attractive to, to use that. Or indeed for those that have to use it, it, it doesn't make them feel good about themselves. So that, that sense about, you know, that it's a universal provision, it's open to everybody, takes away that stigma because anybody can use it. Now, we've seen that in Scottish primary schools with the um, introduction of free school meals to primary one to threes. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, this is an election year in Scotland, um, you know, coming up in a few months' time. This might surprise you. The Conservative Party, as well as the, the Scottish National Party, have said they want to extend that uh, to other years in the school. That, I think, would surprise people. It's not the type of provision we would expect the, the Conservatives to align to. But it gives a sense of how Scotland views itself, and Scotland is, can be different in terms of what it wants for its country. So, generally speaking, then, if it's a selective provision, uh, we understand it in terms of it seems more efficient, you know, because only kids that need it get it, but there are problems with it. So universal provision takes that away. Breakfast cart, you want it, you pick it up, you don't, you don't. It's subtle. And in fact, uh, sorry, sorry, Craig, I'm buttoning in here, many apologies. But what, what was interesting, one of the key findings I think we came out with that we looked at, because we profiled the kids that were using the car, and it was proportionate. So uh, we looked at a free school entitlement and who used the cars. Uh, we looked at whether they came from a, a deprived area, a multi-deprived area, and who used the cars. And it was a proportionate use across the whole school population. So it was very much a service that was being used by all kids. That's what I was going to just come on to, John. How did you inform this breakfast cart? I know you surveyed about 500 pupils and, and about 39 teachers uh, during this initial trial. Can you talk a wee bit about that? Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, we, we've got a module here in, in the, the university called Work Placement, where students choose, rather than do a typical academic module, they come to the, the Scottish Poverty and Inequality Research Unit as researchers, and we give them real work to do, you know, a real applied work on live research projects. Previous years, we've done other projects. We've looked at free school meal provision, actually, in, in our previous years. This year, we, we took the opportunity to evaluate these breakfast carts. So the, the work that we done, and it was a wee, you know, it was, a, you know, 20 students are co-authors of this report because they contributed to that. We um, talked with both primary school kids and we surveyed secondary school kids before the cart was introduced to find out their breakfast eating patterns. We, spoke, we surveyed the parents in the secondary school before the cart was introduced to find out what their perceptions were about children and food in the mornings. We then observed that the children in five different weeks, two weeks in the secondary school, two weeks in one of the primaries, and one week in a second primary, to take note of how the cart was being used. And then we talked with five different groups of secondary school pupils to you know, discuss with them their experiences of using the cart. Ideally, Craig, we would have liked to have done more interviews at the back end, but then coronavirus came in and the whole thing was, was cut short. How were the interviews? Were you quite happy with the feedback? 
Yeah, no, it, there was a lot of nice things that came out there. Not all the kids were using the cart, but, you know, even the kids that weren't using the cart were recognising the value for some of their peers, you know, and it was a case, not just, a, a, again, this issue about kids that can't afford food, but, you know, like um, we Sarah Disney get food in the house in the morning because it's too early for her, but, you know, it's the right time for her when she comes to school. That was a bigger thing in secondary schools, you know, not just the, the issues to do with, with poverty and you know um, not being able to afford food in, in the house but also a case of for some kids it just was too early at the time they had to leave the house uh, and they were ready at nine o'clock to pick up some food but they might not have been ready at eight o'clock when they were getting themselves ready so it was actually more 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 suitable in terms of their, um, their, their daily patterns this will be a really thick question and it's just i'm, I'm asking this question just to, to get a, a broader idea but how important is it that children start the day with a good full breakfast yeah, and as I say to my students, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Um, <laughs> so it's it an obvious question. It it's not a stupid one, but a very <laughs> obvious question. Yeah, and it is. I mean, there has been research done, and I think that's the driving force behind the concern to provide food at breakfast time, is that, that sense then you can't function unless you are properly nourished. Uh, I don't think the research base is, you know, f very fully developed, and, and it's certainly beyond my skill set to do that. It would take nutritionists to do it. But the work that has been done by nutritionists is, is, is indicative then of the need for children to be nourished in the morning. There's lots of anecdotal evidence as well. And in fact, we had some anecdotal comment with the teachers who did feel that children who weren't fed in the mornings that they can identify because parents, uh, sorry for teachers kind of know their kids and they felt as if they were underperforming because they, they, they weren't um, properly nourished in the morning. It sounds like a really simple idea. Why yeah. do you think it's taken so long for it to come to fruition in Scotland? Well, there is cost involved. I mean, you have to provide the food. Um, you also have to, you know, have, have maybe a cart in which the food can sit and then you have to think about how you're, you're going to implement it. So it's a preschool activity that has to be arranged. Uh, this pilot had the support of Greg's Foundation, Breaks, another provider, a private company providing food. They were providing the food that, you know, meant the cost wasn't there to begin with. So it's a cost that, that, that schools would need to think through. Is that an investment that, that is a good use of the school's resources? I would argue it is. And I think many schools also see it as a, a resource that, that's worth investing in. Uh, I think it's for, it's for head teachers, school communities to come to the decision whether it's right for their school or not. And it might not be for all 2,000 schools in Scotland, but for many it is. Uh, and it's a good solution for them. We mentioned that the, the scheme is going to be rolled out to more schools across Scotland and the UK. Are you pleased with how this has all gone so far? Yeah, I think it's the right thing. Promising ideas have, have got to be looked at in more detail. <clears throat> I think there's probably, and research is always going to say there's the need for more research. You know, I'm, 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 going, to, <laughs> I'm going to say that, and I'm saying it, there's need for more research. I think it'd be wrong in the, the, the limited amount of work that we've done in a pilot to say every school in Scotland should have this. It's, it is the solution that will solve the problem. That would be a ludicrous statement for me to make. But it's a promising solution. And I think also it's a, a timely solution that at this time, it's a good way of just providing a little bit of extra safety net. Uh, and it's also not just the start of the school day. There's no reason why you know it can't be used at the end of the school day. You know, some surplus food, perhaps at school dinner time, making it available at the end of school days for kids that wanted to pick up it as they're going out the door. It's both environmentally friendly and it might be a good use of resource that otherwise might go to waste. You know, many schools also have community gardens, for example, so the cart could be used at different times of the day to get that food shared more widely.
Now, next month, Spyro are hosting a webinar to mark International School Meals Day. Can you talk a bit about that, John? Yeah, really interesting group. I mean, both North America and Scotland have done a lot of interesting things with school meals through time, you know, in terms of that, those provisions. And in some respects, very much leaders in terms of the, the, the offers that they have introduced. The free school meals has been the obvious case in Scotland. There's been other provisions in, in North America doing the same to provide food around about the school day. So I think it's, it's, it's a 10 year anniversary in North America about a legislation that they introduced and, and it's a coming together then to learn from each other, but to kind of focus on the COVID period, you know, what really happened in the last 12 months. So we've got a group then of those that are providing at the coalface, service providers and researchers, uh, as well as some, some political figures providing a sense of overview. And the idea is to can generate the, the start of the debate. It's, yes, let's focus on COVID. Let's come to some some learning about what happened in the last 12 months. But let's open up a conversation going forward so we can think about how school meals uh, can be optimised in terms of what they can provide for children, in, in particular in terms of those disadvantaged children, but also more generally what we want from school food in the future. So who's speaking at this webinar? Well, again, we've got politics. John Swinney, uh, hopefully, will be speaking. The, the, the problem with politicians, it's not their problem, is that their diaries sometimes get <laughs> taken control of. And I think there's a wee issue just now about a stage three debate, which is just now, as in literally, just as of last night, been scheduled for, for when that is. And I think he's, he's trying really hard to see if he can fit, fit in the, um, his, his contribution to that. But, I mean, we're delighted that, you know, our Deputy First Minister could even try and find the time to contribute to that and it gives a sense of the importance of the issue that you know in, in a, a busy time for politicians uh, you know master of understatement there that he, he deems it important enough that he would want to spend some time to talk about uh, free school meals with, with people that are interested in that. So what are the next steps John is there anything else you've got upcoming at the moment? Yeah, we've got a few projects that, that, that we're working on. We're, we're also finishing some off, off some work for the Scottish Government um, that, that's looking at holiday provision, which again, is related to the work we're talking about here, looking at some projects and provision in, in different parts of Scotland. Uh, we have recently completed some work for the Scottish Leaders Forum, looking at critical decision making by Scottish leaders uh, during the COVID times in relation to child poverty. We're continuing our work to support the, the, the national, um, the local areas in Scotland that are working towards their local plans to contribute towards that national target. Uh, we're reviewing the, 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 um, the, the recent local child poverty action reports. So that'll be ongoing work over the next few months. And we've got another, another very tightly focused project in um, southwest Glasgow looking at a social supermarket. So it's a new idea of food provision, uh, trying to offer a dignified solution and we're providing research report uh, support rather to um, to that organisation as they design what their service is going to look like. Now, well, you're not trying to make the country a better place, John. You're also trying to make Scottish football a better place. And as we mentioned in our last podcast, you're a football referee. And I know that you perhaps had one eye on retirement towards the end of the 1920 season, but that was curtailed because of the coronavirus pandemic. What's your involvement in football at the moment? Yeah, well, not because of uh, the, the pairing back of uh, football at the level I'm at. Yeah, I, I did retire from the, the senior football in Scotland and had a fantastic time there. Whether I made a positive contribution is very much up for debate. <laughs> I don't think you'll find any supporter in Scotland um, that would think that was a positive contribution, but let me delude myself uh, and, and my, my, my refereeing friends do their very best and, and do very well, much better than our, 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 um, many would think. But in terms of me, I, I've kind of... I want to see out my time doing lower league football as well. I, I, I was delighted that the Scottish um, FA managed to appoint me to Gala Ferry Dean. That, that's, that's a sentence you're not going to hear many people uh, share with you. But I've always wanted to, to referee there. Um, 
the name Gala Fairy Dean, the kind of romance, uh, they were a big team in terms of the Scottish Cup early rounds when I was growing up and I've always wanted to get there and um, they, they managed to stick me out in an appointment um, before lockdown, uh, the, least, the latest lockdown kicked in and they had a fantastic day there. Um, so I'll, I'll continue to do the refereeing. There's also over 35 leagues in Scotland. Now, over 35s are young guys for me, you know, but I, I like the idea of doing that. That's a Friday night football as well. And my, my wee grandson, um, he, he started uh, kicking a ball too. I emphasise kicking a ball, not putting a whistle in his mouth. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll hopefully get some, state, some time watching him as well. That was great, John. Feels like we've packed a lot into that. I've had an incredibly busy year, you know, and I think probably one thing that I've done is I've not got the work-life balance right. I've worked, 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 worked. It's been very productive. I mean, there's a lot of it in the field that I work in, there's a lot of issues, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, and it, I even volunteered to do a little bit extra work for the Poverty and Equality Commission doing a, a mapping of local action to tackle food poverty during the coronavirus crisis. Really good bit of work to be involved in. Um, and as I say, it's been a very busy time, but it's been a productive time. But I'm looking forward to getting back to what used to be a normal time, you know, and we can get back to seeing people face to face, talking with students in classes, and um, you know, continuing the work we're doing. It's, it's going to be increasingly important going forward. Now, John, that was brilliant. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, lovely speaking to you, Craig. Anytime. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to this show and I hope you can join us again soon when we'll be chatting with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Music